All right, as you're heading back to your seats, if you will open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. To Luke chapter 5. If you've arrived there, will you stand as we read God's Word together? We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I'll give you just a second to get there. I'm going to be reading from the CSB, and just full disclosure to you, I realized that I was putting the passages in my, when I was writing the sermon, I was using the ESV, so sometimes I'm going to be jumping back and forth between the ESV and the CSB, but it's all God's Word, all right? So we're going to be looking at Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, hear the Word of the Lord. Luke says, as the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's Word, he was standing by Lake Genesaret. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, We've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, because I am a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. So were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. Heavenly Father, as we continue to think through this idea of what is a disciple, I pray that you will help us to examine ourselves, to recognize the components of being a disciple God, you would strengthen those within us for your fame and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the title of uh, this morning's message is quite simple. It is, What is a Disciple? Part 2. So we began... Uh, last week, a series called Disciple Making Disciples, and we will be in this series for uh, the next couple months, so through February, and so thinking through this idea of disciple making disciples, and we began the series, if you remember back to last week, by highlighting the fact that to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, now pay attention, this is important, to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, you have to be making disciples. You have to be making disciples. It is foundational to the reason that we have breath in our lungs on this earth. And we looked at, very briefly, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, where the last thing that Jesus says to to some of his gathered disciples is, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always to the end of of the age. And so our fundamental purpose as Christians living in this world, why we are left here, why God doesn't save us and just bring us home, and that would be great, wouldn't it, church? But why he does not do that is because he has a task for us, and that task is to make disciples. But we began discussing last week that that we can't truly move into faithful disciple-making until we have a good grasp of what it actually is to be a disciple ourselves. One of the things that the the worship team has heard me say multiple times is I've tried to encourage them. We always go in there and pray and and just walk through the the service. Uh, But I've said it to them a couple times. I've said, don't forget that you can't lead people to a place you're not going. So in terms of worship, we can't lead people in worship if we are not worshiping. Well, the same is true with disciple making. We can't lead people to be disciples if we don't understand what it is to be a disciple ourselves. So last week we began to answer the question of what is a disciple? What is a disciple? And so we have some, some visitors with us, so let me do a quick recap of that. We looked at one chapter, uh, one verse of scripture. We looked at Mark 8, 34. It says, in calling the crowds to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
And so we talked about these these four marks of being a disciple based off of that one verse of Scripture. We talked about how first a disciple is in relationship. And we said that was key, wasn't it? That was foundational because what Jesus invites us into in discipleship is not a list of tasks to be completed, but he invites us into a relationship to be lived in. Praise God. He's just not trying to create a bunch of, for lack of a better word, Pharisees. It's not so much about, I just, I want you to be my disciple so you can check all the boxes, right? You can cross all the T's, dot all the I's. You can do everything that you need to do. He's saying, no, I want you to be my disciple because to be a disciple of mine is to be in relationship with me. We also talked about how a mark of a disciple is that a disciple plays the background. Right? Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. And it's so that when we, when we walk in relationship with Jesus, right, it's because we understand what he has done for us that has allowed us to be in relationship. We understand the cost of that discipleship that Jesus Christ died in our place, paid for our sins, reconciled us to God, and invites us to follow after him and live in the family of God. And so we look at Jesus, we see what he has done, we see him as beautiful, we see him as a treasure, we live love him, and in light of that, we're willing to play the background. We're willing to say that this Jesus deserves all the praise and all the glory. This Jesus deserves my life, and so with everything that I am, I'm going to follow after, after him. I want him to look glorious, not me. And so how that plays itself out is that means that my plans and my dreams and my desires will always take the back seat to making much of Jesus. And that can be tough at times, but a disciple is one who plays the background. And then we talked about the fact that a disciple embraces hardship. Jesus says, if you would come after me, deny yourself and take up your cross. And we talked about how Jesus was never shy about saying that following him would bring pain, it would bring suffering, it would be hardship. And you may be thinking, well, then why would we do it? Because what we also believe is that this light momentary affliction is creating an eternal weight of glory. That what we gain in the life to come is greater than any hurt, any pain, any hardship we might feel by following Jesus in this life. And so what we're saying is we think it's worth it. Because we think Jesus is worth it. And we think what he has provided is worth it. We have life and life abundantly in Christ. And then the final mark of a disciple that we talked about is that a disciple is obedient, right? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so... Somewhat redundant, but we want to stress that a disciple of Jesus actually follows Jesus. Amen? It's a novel concept, isn't it? A disciple of Jesus actually follows Jesus. And so we want to be obedient to be and do that which Jesus has called us to be and called us to do. And those, are, those, are, those aren't the only marks of a disciple, but those are four marks of a disciple that we kind of drew out of that verse of Scripture in Matthew 8. 34. And so we want to continue this morning to answer the question of what is a disciple. And for the purpose of our study, though there's much more that we could say, we're going to kind of end that, we're going to try to answer that question and bring it to completion this morning of what is a disciple, and then we'll move on to something else. So next week what we'll look at is, is the heart behind disciple making. So what is it that drives us to be a disciple who makes disciples? And then following after that, we will be teaching through the idea of preparing to be a disciple of Jesus. Right, The preparation that goes into, not to be a disciple, but to actually make disciples, I'm sorry. So we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness that took place immediately before he started his public ministry. And then what we'll move into again in the month of February is trying to put some feet to this of how do we practically walk out this disciple-making process. So on February 2nd, uh, Pastor Lance will be preaching, thinking through the idea of evangelism as the start of discipleship. Right? Not coming to Jesus as the start of being a, a discipleship, but evangelism being the start of the making of a disciple. So that's where we're headed. Uh, but we're going to try to wrap up answering this question of what is a disciple. Uh, and so what, what I want to talk a little bit about this morning and think through is the necessary components of a disciple. So we talked about the marks, kind of the evidence of a disciple, but what I want to talk about is the necessary components of a disciple, meaning what must be present in the life of a person to be a disciple of Jesus. And so as we continue to answer that question, let me share with you something by way of an introduction. You might be saying, Michael, you've been at it for seven minutes and 13 seconds. That's a long introduction. Well, it's going to get longer, okay? So let me, let me share this by way of introduction. So some of you know me, have known me for a long time. Uh, and you know that, that I like, uh, I share an interest with other, other brothers and sisters in the church. I know Michael Barger is one of them. Uh, but I like apologetics. 
I like apologetics. And what apologetics basically is, is just defending your faith. Uh, how do you defend your faith? So when people, you know, raise philosophical arguments or they raise scientific arguments or, or they raise arguments, how is it that we as Christians can enter into that conversation and defend our faith? Because that's important because one of the things we don't ever see in the Bible is blind faith. Amen? I've checked. There is no mention of having blind faith. And it's a cute sentiment that we've brought out. But biblical faith is different than blind faith. See, blind faith says, I'm just going to follow it. I don't really have any reason why. I don't know why I'm doing it. I'm just kind of doing it. But what biblical faith is saying that, yes, there is aspects of our faith that is mysterious and we don't know. That's what makes it faith. We're trusting in things unseen, right? But part of our faith is built on the fact that we have we have experienced it and tasted and seen the glory of God and know him to be true. There are, there are logical reasons why I follow Jesus. Now, primarily it's because of faith. We're saved by grace through faith. But, but if you ask me, can you tell me why you have faith? There are definitive reasons and arguments that I can make as to why I believe that God exists, why I believe that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins, and why I believe that he will bring us to glory at the end of all of this. So apologetics is basically... How do we defend our faith? How do we enter into that? So I like to read. I like to think about those things. I like to ponder those questions. I like to engage in conversations. Uh, and so there's a book that I read a long time ago because one of the issues that comes up quite frequently in apologetics is the issue of evolution. Does that fit into the scope of Scripture? Did God use evolution to bring this thing about? Is evolution compatible with the Bible at all? Is evolution even real? And so about 15 years ago was the first time I read this book. I've read it probably like six, seven times by now, uh, not always by choice, sometimes because in seminary people assigned it to you, but I read it right as I was finishing high school, and it's a book called Darwin's Black Box. Some of you may have heard of that. And so Darwin's Black Box is written by a guy named Michael Behe. And Michael Behe is a biochemist. So, so he's not writing from like a pastoral perspective. He's not writing from a theological perspective. He is a scientist. He is a biochemist. And he is writing with a scientific approach to just evaluate, can we really say that the claims of evolution are true? Because one of the things he notes, and I promise this is going somewhere, in, that Dar in Darwin's Origin of Species, Darwin basically argued that if anyone could ever prove that, that ev evolution couldn't take place in a species gradually, then the whole concept of evolution would fall apart. That if you couldn't prove that gradual changes could be made over time to make a species evolve into something new, if you could show that that wasn't possible, then you would debunk the whole theory of evolution as Darwin recorded it. And so what Michael Behe in his book, Darwin's Black Box, says is, yeah, we can do that. We can show you that, that species can't evolve gradually over time and maintain any sort of function or existence. And so Michael Behe uses a term, and I like the term, it's called irreducible complexity. You might be thinking, like, man, we didn't know we were getting into all this. Well, bear with me, all right? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to break it down. Irreducible complexity. And what he means is this. He's saying that we are so irreducibly complex that if you took anything away from us, we would cease to function and be what we are. And so he doesn't even look as, at us as a human as whole. He just takes a small part of the human body and takes the eye, for example. And he says, because what you have to understand about the eye is that the eye is not a single system that functions. An eye is made up of multiple systems that function, that all do something to help us bring light in and filter that light and, and communicate to our brain what it is that, that is being reflected around us. There are so many systems at work. And what he argues is the eye couldn't have evolved. Because if you take any one of those systems away... The eye ceases to function. If the eye ceases to function, the eye ceases to be an eye. And if it doesn't function, it's worthless in evolution and it would have gotten thrown out. Does that make sense? Let me try to break it down even more. He gives a really practical example of a mousetrap. And he says there are, there are basically five components of a mousetrap. Aliyah and I know mousetraps really well right now. We're having that battle in our home. Uh, and my wife is the mouse slayer this week. Uh, we won't tell you the story. Ask me later. It's hysterical. Um, <laughs> But we know mousetraps. But, but kind of your traditional mousetraps, right? The wooden one with the thing that flop kills them. You know, it's inhumane, right? It, it has five parts to it. So first it has the hammer. The hammer is the part that goes flop, right? That, that gets him. It has a hammer. And then it has the spring. And the spring is what lets it go from this position to smack down on the mouse really quick in this position. And, and then it has something called the catch. And the catch is that little thing, you know, that, that you kind of hook that rod into that holds it back. And when the mouse touches that, that little catch, it slaps it shut. Right? I don't know why I'm smiling so much. Like, this is exciting to me. I promise I'm not a sociopath. I promise. 
And then you have the holding bar, and the holding bar is the thing that you didn't know you were going to learn this much about mousetraps, right? And that holding bar is the part, right, that, that works with the catch that holds the spring back. And then the last thing you have is the platform, normally a wooden piece that, that it sits on. Now, what the argument of irreducible complexity says is that for, for that mousetrap to have evolved, it would have had to function through every stage of its evolution. But what we know is with a mousetrap, if you take any part of it away, it ceases to be a mousetrap because it doesn't function. If you take the hammer away, it's not going to kill the mouse. If you take the spring away, it's not going to slap shut. You get the idea. And so it has to, it's irreducibly complex. You can't take anything away from it and it still be that which it is supposed to function to be. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, okay, Michael, what does this have to do with a disciple? Well, here's where I was getting with all of that. I would argue that a disciple of Jesus Christ is irreducibly complex, meaning if you take away any one of the components that makes a disciple a disciple, it ceases to be able to function as a disciple, which then means it ceases to be a disciple. We, as disciples of Jesus, are irreducibly complex. Everything that exists to that, that, that has to be present to be a disciple has to be functioning in order for us to be a disciple. Now the question becomes, what are the components of discipleship? What are the things that must be functioning properly for us to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And I would argue that there are three components of being a disciple. The first one is orthodoxy. The second one is orthopraxy. And the third one is orthopathy. Now, if you're like, what did he just say? We wrote them in your bulletin. On the section where you have notes there on your bulletin, each of those words is listed out there, all right? So I'm not going to go through and spell them for you. So if you don't have a, a bulletin and you missed it, um, do the loving Christian thing and just snatch one from someone around you, okay? Uh, so those are what I would argue the three components of what it takes to be a disciple and to function properly as a disciple. So I want to show you this morning is how each of these three components, and we'll define them in a minute, is seen in the text that we just read as Jesus is calling Peter to follow him and Peter is beginning to enter into this process of being a disciple. So the first thing I want you to look at, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is orthodoxy. And so we define orthodoxy as being right doctrine or right truth, the correct truth. It's, it's theology. It's what we believe about God. So the first component to being a disciple of Jesus is that we have to have right theology, right doctrine. We have to believe the right things about who God is, who he says he is, who he's communicated himself to be, and how we are to live in light of that. And I think we see that here in our text. So look again at verses 1 through 3. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on on him, him as Jesus, to hear the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down, listen, and taught the people from the boat. So what is going on here is that Jesus has been teaching. He has been traveling around, and he has been teaching He's been teaching the word of God, we read in the text, but we get a little bit more specifics as to what he's been teaching at the end of chapter 4 in verse 43. So right above where we just read, it says, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So track with me. So Jesus has been going around teaching the good news of God's kingdom from the word of God, and people are listening. So as he gets into Simon's boat, and Simon is Peter, if you don't know that, so Simon is Peter, I'm probably just going to call him Peter from here on out, Jesus continues to teach. And so why is this significant? It's significant because in just a few moments, we will see Peter respond to a request of Jesus. But what I want you to note is that Peter, before he is called to be a disciple, before he is asked to do anything from Jesus, he has been hearing the word of God taught from Jesus himself. He is hearing truth. He is hearing the word of God proclaimed. He is hearing the truth that the kingdom is at hand and the, and the need for repentance. He is hearing right doctrine. And see, what I want you to see is that being a disciple begins with right doctrine 
And being a disciple is sustained by right doctrine. So one of the things as a pastor that drives me crazy, and I've heard it, I hear it frequently, I've heard it in members meetings when people tell me kind of how they understand church, and I've, I've, I hear it as I talk to other pastors and other Christians, don't worry, you guys, you guys didn't say it last night when we met, I'm not talking about y'all, okay, so I uh, met with the Jeffries last night, they didn't say it in their membership stuff, okay, but, but there are some people, right, and they argue, I wish that we could just like get beyond all this theology, Theology divides us. The theology doesn't help us love God and love people. Like, people get caught up so much in these theological arguments and it's a waste of time and we just need to be about loving God and loving people. Now, I, in some regards, I get what they're arguing. That we can get so bogged down that we f- fail to be faithful to the law of Christ, right? To love God and love people. But what I would always contend is the only way you can love God and is you love people is that you know about God and know how to love people. Well, where do we find that in the Word of God? We find that as we build rich theologies about who God is and what He has done for us and we see His love put on full display and so we in turn know how to love. And and so I want to contend to you this morning that theology and that doctrine, it matters. It matters greatly. We can even look at this very example of Jesus in the text, and you say, well, you want to talk about just loving people. Well, how did Jesus love the people that he was engaging with? He was teaching them. He was teaching them truth. He was teaching them about the kingdom of heaven. He was teaching them the word of God. And so doctrine and theology and what we believe, it matters. Now, we want to guard against, and we'll talk about this later, just getting so caught up in that that we don't actually do anything because being a disciple, as we will see, is not only about orthodoxy. But we want to make sure that we believe right things about God. For a disciple, the word of God and proper doctrine is essential. It matters. And I want to give you three reasons why. Here's the first reason. Without sound doctrine, we'll be led astray and we won't know who the God is that we're actually called to follow. Right? So we will be easily led astray and we won't know who the God is that we're called to follow. Scripture speaks of this often. 2 Timothy 4.3. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Sound familiar? Yeah, I'm going to find someone that preaches what I want to hear. That will already tickle the ears of, of what I, tickle my ears and tell me what I like. I, I want to find someone that, that just teaches what I want them to teach. Colossians 2.8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Hear me, church, please hear me. There is a real temptation for each and every one of us to be led astray by false teaching, and often it is not overt. Here's what I mean by that. I have yet to meet a false teacher That puts a disclaimer and puts an asterisk on his teaching telling you that this is not right with the Bible. Right? So we have to be on guard that we are not led astray by teaching that might sound good, that might have nuggets of truth in it, but at its core is so broken and so contrary to the word of God. Great example of that. Some people will teach God wants to bless you. We believe that, amen? You should believe that. God wants to bless you. But then what we'll do is we'll try to define what the blessing is and define it in a way that God didn't define the blessing. And what we mean by blessing is God wants to give you, somebody said it, health, wealth, prosperity. God wants to make sure you never get sick, you never have any hardship in your life, nothing ever gets tough. And then we should look at that and say, hold on, Mark 8, 34, that if we want to be a disciple of Jesus, we will have to endure hardship. How does this line up? It doesn't, but so many people don't know the Bible, so they hear that and they say, ah, that must be what the blessing is. And, and we too can be tempted to be led astray. It's often not quickly. It's not usually overt. But when we don't know the word of God and we don't know right doctrine, we can start down this slow, slippery slope of being led into false teaching. Without a solid grasp of the word, we'd be led astray. But here's the second reason that, that orthodoxy, that right teaching, sound doctrine, why theology matters. It's because as disciples of Christ who represent Christ, who long to be grounded in the, wor- in the word, 
We have to remember that the world is asking questions that the Bible answers. That's very important. The world right now is asking questions that the Bible answers. And if we want to be faithful disciples, we have to be able to speak God's truth into the real questions that lost people are asking in this world. Let me give you an example. And I'm not trying to get political, but I am. So it is what it is. The world is asking questions about how we should respond to immigrants in this country. The world is asking questions. And the Bible has something to say about that. Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You should not treat the stranger who sojourns with you as, or you should treat him as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And if you want to know how God will respond when we don't get this right, Malachi 3, 5. God says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the idolaters, against those who, who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, against the widow and the fatherless. Listen, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and the foreigner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I don't know about you, church, but I have yet to see America first in the Bible. I've yet to see America first in the Bible, but I do see a clear revelation of God's heart uh, towards the sojourner and the foreigner and the exile in a distant land. I see his heart. See, what happened even just recently this week that got me, I knew it was going to come up in the sermon because I was fired up about it all week, was that the governor of Texas just recently told, based off of something that, that, that our president did that left it up to states to decide whether they would accept refugees and immigrants, he basically said, I'm not going to take any new refugees into my state ever. We're done with that. We're cutting them off. And that didn't bother me so much. To be honest with you, what bothered me was the Christian response to that. Was people who applauded that and said, good for you, way to stand first, way to put God and country first. Oh. The Bible has something to say about this issue. I'm not telling you how to vote. I will. Come ask me privately. <laughs> But in all seriousness, the world is asking questions that the Bible answers. The Bible answers. The world is asking questions about sexual ethics. The world is asking questions about that. Just last week, it was announced that the United Methodist Church is proposing in May to split over the issue of homosexuality. They've been dealing, this with, dealing with this for a, a year. I watched it very closely last year when they had a special called conference. You know, the Methodist Church is, is a worldwide denomination. Like, the SBC is U.S. only. Like the Methodist church has brothers and sisters in Asia, in Africa, in Russia, I mean all across. So when they gather, they come from everywhere. It's a sight to behold, it really is. But they were dealing with this issue last year and they're dealing with it again. So last year they voted that they wanted to keep with the traditional sexual ethic. They wanted to keep with the understanding that they had that homosexuality is a sin, that pastors shouldn't be performing homosexual marriages. That's where they landed. But they're coming back again this year because now they're just proposing to split over it and saying what we've decided, what some people have decided is that this is just, this is a key line. This is just a personal issue. So wherever you line up with it, you just need to do what you want to do. But there is no objective right and wrong. So if you don't feel comfortable with it, you can leave and you don't have to do this. We will still love you. If you are good with it, you can stay. It's a personal issue. The problem is the Bible doesn't make it a personal issue. The Bible has something to say about a biblical sexual ethic. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. You can look at Romans 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Later goes on to says, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then he lists them. What are they? For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the man likewise gave up national, or natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving it themselves, the due penalty of their error. The Bible is not shy about this. Now, where we've gotten it wrong, church, I'm just going to throw this out there, is that we've used this as a means to discriminate and to hate those people. And the Bible has something to say about that, too. The Bible has a lot to say about that. 
But the Bible is clear about a biblical sexual ethic. At no time in American history have there been as many couples cohabitating together, which the Bible calls as wrong. But what we see, I I was reading over a sexual education course that's taught in a high school, and what it recommended to their students was that it is a good thing for you to experience multiple partners, so then you will know who you are compatible with. And I look at the Word of God, and it says, flee sexual immorality for any other sin that a person commits is outside of the body. But sexual immorality is a sin that's committed inside the body. And the body is the temple. The Bible has something to say about a biblical sexual ethic. So what I, one of the reasons that sound doctrine matter, matters is because the world is asking questions that the Bible answers and we as disciples of Jesus have to know the word of God to know who God is, where he stands, and how to articulate these issues correctly. If you have questions about any of those that I just mentioned, please come talk to me afterwards. In all seriousness, I'd love to help you think through those things. But here's the third reason. I'm going to pick up the pace because we're on point one and we're 30 minutes in. The third reason that sound doctrine matters is because the word of God rightly held and believed furthers our discipleship. You see, discipleship is a process. When you came to know the Lord and you became a disciple of Jesus, you weren't at the end of the journey. Amen? It's a long road for many of us. And so we are walking out this process of being made to look more and more like Jesus. And so the word of God rightly held and believed furthers our discipleship. The way we grow in our discipleship is by clinging closely to the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for for correction. And check this out, for training in righteousness. John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, I want to say this before we move on to, to orthopraxy. You and I have to fight to hold on to the word. Because we might sit in this place and agree, and I think most of you who are here in Christ would agree that, yes, the Bible matters. Right teaching matters. Doctor, yes, the Bible has something to say about the issues going on in our world. Yes, we know we could be tempted to be led astray. Yes, we want to grow in our discipleship, but acknowledging this as a fact isn't the same as fighting to cling to the word. Because I would be willing to bet, and I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but there are some of us sitting in this room right now who would honestly say that we are not growing in our discipleship, and I would be willing to bet that if I asked the question, how well are you spending time in the word, how closely are you clinging to the word, that there is usually a direct correlation Because here's the thing with being a disciple of Jesus, and I want you to hear me say it. It doesn't just magically happen. We fight for it. We fight for it. But know this, that God is fighting for it as well. It's not the word of God's fault that you're not growing. It's your fault because the Bible says the word of God is active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces heart and mirror. The word of God will do its work. The question is, are we clinging to it? One of my favorite quotes from a great theologian that I love is Albert Einstein. And Albert Einstein once said that insanity is doing the same thing twice and expecting different results. Some of us are wondering why we're not growing and we refuse to do anything different. We refuse to fight to cling to the word. We refuse to set an alarm clock to make ourselves get up an hour early to spend time in the word. Like we, 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 we refuse to turn off the TV and, and read our Bible. We keep doing the same things, failing to cling to the word of God, and we wonder why we're not growing as disciples because it doesn't just magically happen. We fight for it. Brother Niall pointed it out in our community group is that when you think about the idea of disciple, it kind of, it comes from the, the root, or, or it's connected to discipline, right? And, and, and discipline, when I think of discipline, I'm thinking of it in the sense of disciplining your mind, disciplining your body. I've played sports, you might not believe it now, but like could run really, really well. I ran cross country for a minute. Like that took work. I had to discipline my body. I really had to learn how to like run a long distance and and, and, and control my body and not push too hard. You discipline yourself. It takes work. And the same thing is true with being a disciple. It takes real discipline. The word is active. Are you? So that's the first component. The first component of a disciple is orthodoxy, right? Belief, right? Teaching, sound doctrine, the truth. Here's the second component. It's orthopraxy. And what orthopraxy means is it basically means right actions or right conduct, what we do. So if orthodoxy has to do with what you believe, orthopraxy has to do with what you do. So look at verses 4 through 6 with me. Luke says, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, "Put Put out into the deep and let your nets 
uh, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. So Jesus has just finished teaching. And he tells Peter to toss his nets out again. And Peter basically says to him, look man, we've been at this all night. And we have not caught a thing. But if you say so, we will do it. If you say to put the nets out, we will do it. Now the question is, and it's the question we should ask of the text, why did Peter do it? He's tired. He's, I don't know if any of you have ever gone fishing. I like fishing. I really do like fishing. Some of y'all do because we've been fishing together. But fishing can be the most frustrating thing in the world, Right? And probably for me, because I can be a really impatient person. So if I go spend all this money on like, you know, minnows and worms, and you know, you got to put a, a minnows in the bucket that has a little thing in it that lets them breathe and whatnot, and I always lose my bucket from the last time that I go fishing, so I buy a new one, so I always spend money, and I buy all this stuff, and I go out, and I cast it in, I want the fish to come like right now. Like I'm, and so if I can go all day and don't catch a fish, like, don't talk to me for a minute. Like some people are like, well, it's just great to be out there. Not for me, I want the fish. Okay, that's, that's why I'm out there. If I just wanted to stand and stare at a lake, I wouldn't have lugged all this equipment with me, okay? So Peter's at that, that point. He's like, look, we're tired. We've been at this all night. We haven't caught anything. Jesus has put them out again, and they say, if you say, we'll do it. If you say, put them out, we'll do it. Why? The answer to that question is seen in the one word at the beginning of Peter's response. Master. Master. Now you see, that response shows that not only did Peter hear Jesus' teaching, now track with me where, he is beginning to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He is beginning to believe the truth that he had heard, and it led him to respond in obedience. You see, master wasn't necessarily the term that we would think of in terms of like, he sees him as Jesus, or as like God in flesh. But by that term, he's saying, I at least recognize that you are, you are a moral teacher. Like, you hold, your words hold some weight. So I'm recognizing that you are, you are a master of what you are speaking of. You, you know what you're talking about. So you seem to be a pretty smart guy. So if, if, if you're a smart guy and you're telling me to put your nets out, I'm going to trust you again. I'm going to trust you. So he's beginning to believe, and it led him to a, obedience. And when we are deeply dwelling on the word, and when we take God at his word in faith, it will begin to affect how we live, won't it? just like we see here with Peter. So for those of us who are believers, as we dwell on God's word, as we intake God's word, as we believe God's word, it will begin to change how we live. James 1, 22 and 23 says this, therefore putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, he says, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. And then he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So what James is arguing is you have to have both hearing and doing irreducible complexity. You can't take one away. 1 John 2, 3 through 6, it says, And by this we know that you have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Yeah, that verse right there by itself is amazing. That, and by this we know that you have come to know him if you keep his commandments. Not that you will know him if you keep your commandments, but if you truly know him, you will keep his commandments. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. And by this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's being a disciple, isn't it? And what John is getting at is what I like to call hearing with your life. You see, there's a difference between hearing with your ears and hearing with your life. Uh, one of the things that has helped me as a pastor has been, you know, becoming a parent. Because they're built-in sermon examples. They really are. I mean, I share a story about my girls pretty much like every Sunday, and it's because they're, they're great. Um, we love them. They're cute. They're little sinners, and we can make... Great stories out of them, right? No, but, but here's, here's what I mean by, by the difference between hearing with your ears and hearing with your life. If I say to Emery, Emery, we're getting ready to leave. Go pick up your cup. Oftentimes, and it's often, she won't do anything. She will sit there. And I'll say, Emery, did you hear me? I got to quit yelling or she's going to like run out of the classroom. Yes, Daddy? Uh, 
She wouldn't be that obedient. Uh, <laughs> I say, Emery, did you hear me? And she'll look at me and say, yes. And so my next question is, then why didn't you go get your cup? You see, that's how, the, how a lot of us, that's what we do with the word, right? The word is preached, the word is proclaimed, the word is read, the word is studied. And Jesus is saying, did you hear it? Did you hear what I said? And so often we just sit there with no change in our action and we say, yes. But see, what orthopraxy is pushing us towards is that we have, we have dwelt so deeply on the word of God that we don't just know it in our heads, but we hear it with our life. It flows out of what we do. We are, in fact, obedient to the commands of Scripture. Again, for those of us who claim to be disciples, the truth of God's word and who he is has to affect how we live. But again, just like orthodoxy, this is something we have to fight for. This is something that you and I have to fight for. Sometimes being faithful to be obedient to what God has called us to requires strategy, doesn't it? I think sometimes we think again that it's just magically going to happen, but there are areas in my life where I know I am being disobedient, but again, insanity, if I just keep doing things the way that I've been doing them and don't try anything else, sometimes we've got to sit down and put pen to paper and say, here is where I've been disobedient. Let me list out some ways that in light of what God has said, I can fight to do this differently. That I can make real changes to fight to be obedient. All right, I know that the Bible calls me to go and make disciples, to share my faith with, with those who are lost. But I know that I'm not sharing my faith with the lost. So let me sit down and strategize some practical ways that I can do that. Maybe it means I need to go hang out with some lost people. Maybe it means that I need to pray that the Lord would give me boldness because I'm examining. I'm saying I'm having opportunities, but I'm just not doing it. I'm not talking to my neighbors. I'm too scared when we have conversation. And we strategize and we fight and we work because, again, here's the thing. God is strategizing and fighting through the Holy Spirit on your behalf, moving you and convicting you, pushing you to be obedient because that is what God longs for from his disciples. And so a question before we do our final uh, component here is what are some intentional ways that you can be obedient to what God has called you to do? Intentional ways. And that means strategizing, thinking. What are some intentional ways you can be obedient to what God has called you to do? So we have seen two of the three components of a disciple. We've seen orthodoxy, right? Thinking, right? Belief, right? Doctrine, sound theology. We've seen orthopraxy, uh, right? Conduct, right? Lives, lives that reflect and mirror that which we believe. But here's the third one, and this is very, very important, and people pronounce it different ways. Orthopathy. Orthopathy. Now let me be clear. This is not orthopathy like the alternative medicine. Because if you go and Google this word, this is a real word that means like alternative natural hygiene medicine. I don't know nothing about that. But in theological terms, what this word means is, is right affection, right feeling, right emotions. See, it's not enough to just have right doctrine. It's not enough to just have right conduct. What we also have to have is right feeling, right emotions, a right affection for God. And again, I think we see this with Peter. Look at verses 7 through 11. Luke says, they signaled to their partners in the boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, listen to this, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men or fishers of men, as so many of us know it. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So check this out. This is so cool. So Peter I mean, I love that God gives us this insight because we think so much of Peter when he's already the apostle, but we're getting to watch as Peter becomes a disciple. And so Peter listens to Jesus teach. He hears sound truth. He responds in obedience. It affects his conduct by casting his net out. And, and, and these nets are filled to the brim so much so that they have to bring in another boat and both of them are still sinking. But Peter's response is both fascinating and convicting to me. Because here something shifts in Peter. Because before he was just master, the good teacher, right? 
But now he calls him by a different name. What is it? Lord. See, through this power of Jesus displayed, I think for the first time, Peter has, has eyes to see that this one before me is not like anyone who has stood before me before. That this man who has proclaimed the kingdom of God is not just any order, ordinary man. I think he's beginning to believe in a, on the cusp of understanding that this is God in flesh. And so he responds with the right affection. And it's not giddy love and a hug for his Savior. It's get away from me. I am unworthy of you. And he is broken in the presence of Jesus. But then notice what Jesus says to him in verse 10, and I love this. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So this interaction, I love this interaction because it shows us two things. It shows us first that Peter had the right affection. He had the right emotions toward God as he's, as he's becoming a disciple, but it also mirrors for us so beautifully the picture of the gospel. See, let me explain. The reason that Peter has that response of depart from me is because for the first time probably ever in his life, Peter understands the weight of his sin. Because when we stand in the presence of holiness, we see what we really are. And the only thing that Peter could get out of his mouth was just get away from me because this is too much. And I think there was a sense, though he might not have been able to articulate it, that Peter knew for the first time that his sin did indeed separate him from holiness. And it separated him from God. And I think he understood, or it was beginning to, that the right response of this King of Kings and Lord of Lords standing in front of him should have been to destroy him on the spot in the boat. But what does Jesus do? Rather than judge and condemn and punish, he consoles this one. He says, don't be afraid. He shows grace. He shows kindness. and He shows mercy to Peter. And in return, you see Peter's affections take another shift. They move from a healthy fear of God to a real love for Jesus. How do you know he loved him? Because of what it says in verse 11, that they left everything and followed him. Only a real love would cause someone to abandon everything to follow Jesus. But that, hear me church, that's, that's the gospel. Right, that we in our sins stand condemned in the presence of a holy God. Our sin separates us from God. We say it so frequently. It's not trite to us. When we really wrestle with that, we, we understand that we are wretched to the core. My heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know it? The Bible says that even the best we have to offer is like filthy rags to God. We are tainted with sin and unclean to the core of who we are. And our God is holy. And that means he is perfect. And he cannot be in the presence of sin. And so at this point, we're sitting here thinking, that's bad news for us. And it is. And God, as you hear me say so frequently, should rightly destroy us because of our sin. The moment we sin, the moment we are born, born in sin, God has the right to destroy us because of our rebellion. And yet, for so many of us, we've received the consolation of a king. And he shows grace, and he shows mercy, and he shows kindness meant to lead us to repentance. And then we see even more of it when we look to Jesus and understand who he is, that Jesus is God in flesh who came to fix what our sin broke. The relationship with God was shattered and we couldn't get it back and Jesus came to restore it. He lived the perfect life in our place and then he took all of that judgment and punishment that we deserve on himself in order to bring us into fellowship with God. And what that ought to produce in us, what it has to produce in us if we are disciples of Jesus, is this amazing love for God. I think one of the great tragedies for so many Christians is that we've gotten the doctrine right, we've gotten the conduct right, and we've missed the affection. And without that real love for God, that when we think of what he has done for us, we are broken and humbled and in awe and we worship. Without that, we cannot be a disciple. But what produces that in us is when we begin to dwell deeply and reflect and marvel at all that God has done for us and remember that we deserved none of it. None of it. 
So if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, I, I want you to know that there is the potential for you to be a disciple here today, a follower of Jesus. And it begins by understanding the weight of your sin and that it separates you from God. But understanding and believing that Jesus loved you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to save you from your sins and God raised him from the dead and we can walk and live as disciples in fellowship with God for all of eternity. And I invite you to believe that. I invite you to, to turn from your sins and follow after Jesus and be a disciple, maybe here for the first time. And I said this last week, it should be encouragement to you that one of the things we're talking about is how to make disciples. And so we will walk with you through that process as we too are being made more, to look more like Jesus. But let me end by saying this. Brothers and sisters, a disciple is irreducibly complex. You need all the parts. All the parts. Not only for us to be disciples, but we need all the parts to help others be disciples because we have to remember that if all you have is orthodoxy, you will be nothing more than a philosopher. And if all you have is orthopraxy, you'll be nothing more than a Pharisee. And if all you have is orthopathy, you will be nothing more than an idolater, worshiping a false god you created that stirs your emotions. But in Christ, we are invited to have right doctrine and right practice and real affection for who God is and what he has done for us. Now I want to, I said I was going to end, but I'm going to end with this. I know there's a temptation to hear this and to think, man, I am missing the mark on one or two or three of these components of being a disciple. One of the things that I want to encourage you with is this. The amazing thing about our God is that he doesn't keep us as disciples based off of how well we perform. He holds on to us and never lets us go, even when we struggle, even when we falter, even when we fail, because his grace is sufficient. It is enough. And when we believe in Jesus, we can rest assured that knowing that though we struggle and though we falter, though we fail, he will hold us fast. I wasn't going to share this, but I am now. The Holy Spirit's kind of pushing me. I shared it with the worship team. One of the things that was really hard for me this week with this message really hard for me, is that I read through those lists of the three components and I could identify in myself where I have failed miserably this week. And in some areas, in one area in particular, it wasn't like I just kind of fluctuated. I just didn't have it. And it was hard. It was painful knowing that I'm going to come up here and preach a message that, that I am struggling with. But what I was reminded of the fact that that's how amazing our God is, is it not? That he uses broken people and he doesn't give up on us when we falter and when we fail. And as we've said last week, and we'll say probably every week, that he who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. And so if we have placed our faith in Jesus and we are longing to run after him, even though we might struggle with depending on the word or we might struggle with right conduct or we might struggle with right affection, that God will complete the work. And so we press on and we love him even more because of that. Amen.